0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What is rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
1: Before we start today's episode, we need your help with an upcoming show. Are you a business that is trying to hire but cannot? We would love for you to tell us what you have tried. Have you changed the hours? Have you added perks? Are you turning to less skilled workers? And we'd also love to hear what this has meant for your business that you cannot find workers. And then on the other hand, are you a worker who has turned down a job or quit? Tell us why. Was the pay too low? Is it safety, child care? Is it something we haven't thought of yet? And then thirdly here, are you looking for work? And cannot find it? Do you want to call BS on the whole labor shortage? Have you applied for jobs that, that are maybe even at companies complaining about the shortage? If your answer is yes to any of these, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to have you record a brief voice memo on your cell phone, keep it to a minute or less, please, with just the main details as well as your name and your location, and then email that to planetmoney at npr.org. That's planetmoney at npr.org. You can Write to us by email as well, but a voice memo is way better for us. Thank you, and uh, on to the show. This is Planet Money from NPR.
2: It's March 2020. Dr. Robert Kadlik, known by his colleagues as Dr. Bob, finds himself in the middle of the COVID crisis. And that's because last year, Dr. Bob, former Air Force physician and bioweapons expert under George W. Bush, He is now the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services, meaning that now that there is a pandemic, it's on Dr. Bob to deal with it. Remember what it was like a year and a half ago? There were not enough gloves, not enough masks, not enough PPE. There were no proven medicines for COVID, no vaccines. So Dr. Bob's portfolio of responsibilities was pretty large. So briefly, it's being prepared. Being prepared. The stockpile. The stockpile. All the vaccines. All the vaccines. So you're kind of a pandemic guy. Yeah, it's um, that's a good way of putting it. Dr. Bob is the kind of person who turns to history for ideas. So he does what Dr. Bob does, and he starts to dig into the archives. There, he finds a technical manual from 1962 where researchers had tested what materials could be turned into an impromptu mask.
3: There were things like using toilet paper folded over, uh, using T-shirts and a variety of other products. And in this manual, he finds some pretty
2: good evidence that, yes, cloth masks are effective. Dr. Bob's like, great, cloth masks, let's do this. He calls up Haynes and he convinces them to pivot from making underwear to making masks. They make an agreement and he launches America Strong, Keep Healthy and Live On, which is a cloth mask initiative.
3: Now, the color was somewhat controversial. The color was controversial. What color were they? Well, they were white because, you know, what you didn't want to have something is somebody would have this mask and would never wash it. And so uh, the idea (laughs) that it was white would show dirt and then people would be self-conscious and they would wash their mask.
2: Function over fashion. That is so, Dr. Bob. So he takes a slice out of his tiny budget to order 650 million white cotton masks from Haynes.
3: They cost about 71 cents per mask. Shipping was about 62 cents with the Postal Service so that we could conceivably um, mail them to every residence in the United States.
2: But you might have noticed you never got a pack of these America Strong masks in the mail. That's because they weren't sent. And even though the CDC liked
3: the plan, so did Dr. Fauci, so did FEMA when it came time to brief it to the audience at the White House task force, uh, I didn't get even to the first slide. It was interrupted and stopped. What what went wrong? Well, um, I'd like to know. I'd like to know, too. Dr. Bob
2: asks around, but he never gets a formal answer. Instead, he just hears trivial, gossipy comments about his mask.
3: No one would wear them. No one wanted to use the Postal Service. Um, why were they white? You know, they look like underwear. That one's a little true. We never had the full debate, and, and it was pulled off the the agenda and never to be surfaced again.
2: There have been some studies since that suggest that his idea could have saved tens of thousands of lives.
3: Yeah, that's the one thing that keeps me awake at night, even today. With that not going forward, um, it was time to come up with another another idea. Another
2: idea, because if Dr. Bob can't slow the spread with masks, then he really has only one other option. He better get some vaccines made, and he better do it fast.
4: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Amanda Aronchik. And I'm Alexi Horowitz-Gazi. Now that we have a few different COVID-19 vaccines, it might seem inevitable that it would happen this way. But a year and a half ago, when Dr. Bob first embarked on his mission, it felt impossible Today on the show, Dr. Bob's next
2: idea, Operation Warp Speed. This is the story behind the story of how the vaccines were made in record time. And one little quick warning, this show is going to be a weird, trippy flashback. Like, was this last year? Was this a thousand years ago? There is no way to know for sure.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers, allowing you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. Get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash money to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.
2: It's April 2020, just a couple of days after Dr. Bob Cadlick's mask idea gets shot down. And he is feeling desperate. He is the government's pandemic guy appointed by President Trump, responsible for making sure we have the medicines and vaccines we need. But he has got nothing. The medicine
4: cabinet is bare. So he texts some of his closest colleagues and he says, can you please come meet with me? I've got this idea. Plus, I can offer you an
3: incentive. Well, I think there were about three or four pizzas. Uh, They were from We the Pizza on Capitol Hill. They deliver. uh, And they take uh, American Express.
2: (laughs) Five of Dr. Bob's buddies bite. They show up to his windowless
4: office on the sixth floor of the Hubert H. Humphrey building for some pizza and brainstorming. This group knows that in the past, pharmaceutical companies haven't wanted to make vaccines for emerging diseases, new outbreaks. Because who knows how many people will need it? What if the outbreak just goes away? That's what happened with SARS and MERS and Zika.
3: There was no one on the commercial side that was willing to invest the money for something that may or may not occur ever again. For the pharma companies, it's
2: too unpredictable a market. They can't guarantee that they'll make a profit. So the big companies don't want to invest in something so risky, and the small companies don't necessarily have the money or experience to navigate all the hoops. So what about the government?
3: The government can't manufacture vaccines. Now, we have tried historically, and in doing so, we have failed magnificently.
2: In the past, the government has tried to be a maker of vaccines, to have labs and their own factories. But Dr. Bob says it was just too hard and too expensive for them to do well
3: they went through a, a variety of different analyses some economic some scientific and technical and in the end realized that the wherewithal the experience and expertise to make these things do not reside in the government he says big
4: pharma won't go alone and the government can't go alone then in walks covid-19 and now dr bob has to find a way to get everyone to work together so something can get made like right right now
2: Now, again, Dr. Bob has turned to history to find a solution. He's standing in front of his buddies, and he takes a black marker, and he writes up on the whiteboard, Manhattan Project.
6: We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history.
2: This is President Harry Truman talking about the Manhattan Project, which was a secret program launched during the Second World War to create an atomic bomb.
6: Both science and industry work together together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time.
3: Obviously, we weren't making a bomb. We were were trying to develop vaccines and therapeutics, but it was this idea that it would be a, a partnership with the U.S. government and the private sector to accelerate the speed of science and have a product at the end of that, in this case, a vaccine.
2: So they need to accelerate the speed of science. But how? Dr. Bob and his colleagues discuss what the process usually takes. First, there's academic research, where they try to figure out exactly what it is they're making. Then there are preclinical trials, where they test it on mice and monkeys. That's followed by phase one trials, basically asking, is this thing safe? And then phase two trials, where they take a few more people and they see,
4: okay, what's the right dosage? Finally, phase three trials. That's where they're going to get a ton of people and make sure this thing really works.
2: And if it does, now they get it all approved
4: by the FDA. Less than 10% of new drugs get that approval because at any point, a vaccine or drug could fail. There's even a part of this whole journey that's known affectionately as the valley of death.
2: The way things have been done in the past will not work for a respiratory virus that is quickly spreading around the world. Up until now, the fastest timeline for a new vaccine was four years. Thankfully, Dr. Bob knows someone at the FDA, Dr. Peter Marks. They patch him into the
3: pizza party. Peter Marks, you know, came on the line and we pitched him about this idea of accelerating the FDA approval cycle. Together, they come up
4: with a bold solution. What if they were to run all the parts of the FDA process, the animal trials, the human trials, the data analysis all roughly at the same time.
3: It's basically taking a string, as linear as it is, when you hold it end-to-end, and folding it on itself to take the processes that are typically done sequentially and doing them in parallel.
2: Dr. Bob loves this idea. And what if we could also manufacture the vaccine candidates while we're testing them? Now, in normal times, pharmaceutical companies wait until after the FDA gives approval to start manufacturing – Setting up a vaccine factory takes months
4: or even years and millions of dollars. So, doctors Bob, Peter and company come up with another idea. What if the government pays companies to start manufacturing vaccines before they are approved? Yeah,
3: your product may not get through the wickets, may not get through FDA approval, but we're going to pay you to develop this, this product, to manufacture it at scale so That was going to be a role of the U.S. government was to assume the risk of manufacturing at risk.
2: If a company manufactures a vaccine and it's found to not be safe or it doesn't work, they will dump it. But they won't have to eat
4: the cost of making it. So Peter has ideas about how to make the FDA process move faster without compromising safety. And Dr. Bob has ideas about how to get the government and private companies to work together. They start to hatch a clear plan.
3: It was kind of like the uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup experience. Uh, I had the chocolate, he had the peanut butter, and together we we were in business. They write up a mission
2: statement, come up with a name. Project Peanut Butter Cup? No. They call it Project
4: Warp Speed because... Star Trek. Dr. Peter's a huge Trekkie. Aside from the Manhattan Project being their inspiration, they also copy the leadership structure. You might have heard of J. Robert Oppenheimer. He's often remembered as the head of the Manhattan Project. But there were actually two leads. Oppenheimer was the scientific lead and Lieutenant General Leslie Groves was the operational lead. Dr. Bob wanted to do the same thing. So it would be a collaboration between the health department and the military So they don't want to
2: call it Project Warp Speed. The military doesn't do projects anymore. Projects are for the dorks over at NASA. Today's military, they do
4: operations. Now all they have to do is get their idea approved by the White House. But there are not actually a lot of fans at the White House of Dr. Bob and his team. You know, the folks who ordered hundreds of millions of tidy whities for your face.
6: They were on the outs at that point.
2: This is Brendan Burrell. He's a journalist, and he's the one who introduced me to Dr. Bob Cadlick. Brendan just published a book called The First Shots, and this episode is based on his reporting.
6: Cadlick's boss was on the verge of getting fired, and so was Cadlick. And this is like a team of, of basically outcasts from the Trump administration, right?
4: There's fighting going on between the White House and the health department over ventilators and PPE and testing. But this ragtag team of outcasts, they still need President Trump.
6: For the program to work, because it is taking two branches of government, it needed the approval of the White House. And that came in the form of Jared Kushner, um, who, you know, is the president's son-in-law and, you know, known as the secretary of everything and had been kind of meddling in the pandemic response. And Kushner knew that it was important. And so he kind of provided the, the cover for it and the protection. So he took it to Trump, got Trump to say, yeah, this is a good idea. And at that point on, they were left to do their own thing.
2: May 15th, 2020 is the official launch of Operation Warp Speed. Dr. Bob was there.
3: There was a Rose Garden ceremony at the White House, and I was invited to it, um, interesting enough. And so I got a friend row seat, and all I know, it was sweltering heat, and I'm just—and of course you have to get there early, and I'm just sitting in this chair like in a puddle of sweat— And I just remember meeting uh, Dr. Slowey for the first time that day.
4: Dr. Monsef Slowey had just been hired to be the J. Robert Oppenheimer of this operation. He's got decades of experience working for one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, GlaxoSmithKline. And he's helped get more than a dozen vaccines to market. Slowey is also a millionaire and drives a Ferrari.
3: He drove down from Philadelphia, where he lived... Uh, uh, and um, showed up, and I remember he was in a leather jacket and a, and a shirt, open collar, and, and it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> where's your tie? Unfortunately, he had a sport coat, but somebody had to lend him his tie.
2: <laughs> there are a few chairs set up in the Rose Garden, and then President Trump emerges from the Oval Office, flanked by Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Defense Secretary Esper. It's kind of a mashup of doctors and generals.
4: Today, I want to update you on the next stage of this momentous medical initiative. It's called Operation Warp Speed. That means big and it means fast. Trump explains some of the details. They've winnowed down the possible vaccines to 14 candidates. And then he introduces Dr. Slowey.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. He's now wearing a silky blue tie, although it's a little crooked.
3: I have very recently uh, seen early data. From a clinical trial, these data made me feel even more confident that we will be able to deliver a few hundred million doses of vaccine by the end of 2020. Uh, uh, And we will do the best we can, the best we can to do that. Thank you. Even
4: though Dr. Slowy was an expert, even if he knew things the public couldn't know yet, there had been so many mistakes so far. 87,000 Americans were already dead. So when they make this promise, No one believes them. The Trump administration's end-of-year goal outpaces what most experts believe is possible. The shortest time anybody's
3: ever found a vaccine against any disease that I'm familiar with is about seven years. This doesn't fit
4: with any timeline that we've ever heard before with regard to vaccines.
0: It is impossible to get that done by the end of the year. There was a lot, a lot
6: of pushback. Journalist Brendan
4: Burrell again.
6: It was so dizzying at that time. I was just starting to report on COVID and I had heard everything that that Tony Fauci had said and what every expert said, which is, you know, it's gonna be another 18 months before we have the vaccine at a minimum. And then suddenly this thing called Operation Warp Speed gets announced and they're saying they can have a vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, Nobody really knew what to believe.
4: At this point, no one even knows for sure if any of the potential vaccines will work. But still, there's this intense race going on to find out. And then, talk about
2: flashbacks. The vaccine race hits the summer of 2020. That's after the break.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Babson College.
4: In the summer of 2020, Dr. Bob is still trying to keep himself from getting fired. And he's also trying to help Operation Warp Speed meet its deadline. 300 million doses ready by January 2021.
2: There are still a bunch of pharma companies in the race. Moderna, unproven vaccine makers. Johnson & Johnson, big company, but more talc than vax. AstraZeneca is having some issues. And then
4: there's Pfizer-BioNTech. At this point, Pfizer and Moderna are taking the lead, getting volunteers for Phase 3, the human trials. Now, Pfizer is enormous, and
2: they decide they don't need money from Operation Warp Speed for R&D. But the government has promised to pay them $2 billion for their shots if they work, essentially
4: providing them with a very big incentive. And then while they're doing all these trials, something happens that has a surprising effect on all this. George Floyd is murdered in Minneapolis. And The reckoning over race that follows touches everything, including the race to find a vaccine. Dr. Francis Collins is the director of the National Institutes of Health. He's actually Dr. Fauci's boss and one of the key players in making Operation Warp Speed happen.
7: I was deeply moved by what had happened in our country and this just glaring example of how we have not gotten past our long and gruesome history of racism and it was playing out daily in the presence of COVID-19.
2: People of color were disproportionately getting sick and dying from COVID. And at this point in time, Dr. Collins is overseeing the pharma companies that are in phase three, that are recruiting tens of thousands of people to try out the shots. And he looks at who Moderna has been signing up.
7: They felt this enormous pressure to recruit quickly uh, because it's a public health crisis and people are dying. And if you're trying to recruit quickly, you recruit the people who are most likely to say yes. (laughs) And that tends to be white people, especially young, healthy white people.
2: Dr. Collins goes to Moderna's executive team and he's like, what are you going to do about this? And he says that their response was less than satisfying.
7: I mean, it was hand-waving. Right. And um, this is where I got fairly directive. (laughs) (laughs) And I made a little speech about, okay, if that's the strategy you're going to pursue, you may have a vaccine that turns out to be safe and effective for white people, but you will have failed and we will not defend you.
4: So at this moment in the pandemic where it feels like every second matters, they pump the brakes. They don't want to go forward with the trials because, Dr. Collins says, if the people testing the vaccine don't represent the American public, the public won't trust the vaccine. Moderna then recruits more people of color. So at this moment, you make
2: this request to diversify the trials. What happens? Does it slow things down a little?
7: (laughs) Uh, It, in fact, did have a modest effect of that sort.
2: But,
4: Dr. Collins says, just by a week or two. Really, though, Pfizer and Moderna were both doing everything possible to be first. They always denied that it was a race against each other. They kept saying, no, it's just a race against the virus. But really, being first would mean bragging rights forever, plus the first chance at those lucrative international deals. Then on Sunday, November 8th, 2020, Pfizer
2: gets its first peek at whether its vaccine really works. Their executives gather together at
4: their offices in Greenwich, Connecticut. They're there because the data is about to be unblinded. This means that of those thousands of people participating in human trials, some have gotten COVID. But whether that COVID-positive person got the vaccine or the placebo is still a secret. Here's journalist Brendan Burrell again.
6: So the company doesn't know what the results are as they're coming in. Um, but, the company?
2: The company doesn't know.
6: Yeah, I mean, they say it's like going to the dark side of the moon. That's the that's the expression that people use. Uh, You have no idea. You've just sunk, you know, half a billion dollars into this thing, and you're not going to find an answer out until until it's ready.
2: So there's this independent group known as the Data and Safety Monitoring Board. They work for the government, and they are the people who know.
6: They have the the special goggles that allow them to see the results, (laughs) to see if there's safety problems, and they tell the company they have to halt the trial or tell the company this vaccine is so effective or this treatment is so effective You know, we're going to take the blind off um, and we're going to share the results with you.
4: Now, the FDA had said, we'll be happy if you can make a vaccine that is 50 percent effective. The Pfizer execs are sitting, waiting patiently to find out how well their vaccine works. They've finished their boxed lunches. So they're waiting around and they start making bets. Maybe it's 60 percent effective, maybe 70 percent. That'd be pretty good. But they really have no clue. Here we go. Yeah. Hello, everybody.
6: Hi, Bill.
2: Hi, Catherine. (laughs) Pfizer made sure there was a video team there to capture the moment. Everyone is staring at a phone on the conference table. And then there is the world's
4: longest pause. Good news. We made it. And then the question on everyone's mind? How effective is it?
0: The efficacy was more than 90%. Oh, my (laughs) God.
2: They break out the champagne.
4: I love you.
2: Yeah, it was, like, stunning, right? Dr. Bob remembers when he heard the results.
3: It was, like, unbelievable. It was like, you know, wait, (laughs) there's got to be a mistake here or something. And then knowing, you know, within weeks later, Moderna's to match that. It was just, it was like, oh, my God. It, It was like almost, you couldn't even dream it possible. It had been just seven months
4: since he wrote The Manhattan Project on his office whiteboard.
3: I got to tell you, though, it was like, yay, now let's focus on moving, you know, what's next?
2: Technically, Operation Warp Speed did not meet its stated goal. The promise was 300 million doses by January 2021, and instead, by that date, they had distributed
4: 50 million. But in a lot of ways, Operation Warp Speed had been monumental. The program that began in Dr. Bob's office managed to solve a fundamental failure in the vaccine market. They'd collapsed the approval process, and they'd helped develop several shockingly effective vaccines. And they did it three years faster than ever before.
2: The Biden administration didn't end up keeping Dr. Bob around. But they did keep Operation Warp Speed. They gave it a new name, one that only a Democrat could love, the Countermeasures Acceleration Group. And we should note, Dr. Monsef Slaoui was also dismissed by the Biden administration, and he later faced a sexual harassment
4: charge at his old job. He apologized and resigned. As for the rest of us, we did get to enjoy Dr. Bob's yay moment for a little bit. But now the what's next is kind of looming over everything. How many boosters will we need? Will we share the vaccines with the countries that need it most? Journalist Brendan Burrell says there are still lots of questions around profit and ownership and patents swirling around. Did we, with Operation Warp Speed, just rush a bunch of vaccines
2: that would have otherwise been made by, like, say, Pfizer, doing it on taxpayer money and then sending all of that taxpayer money to Big Pharma?
6: Um, You know, I think Big Pharma certainly got a good deal out of all of this. Uh Uh-huh. Um, the, the question of how these profits should be distributed and who owes who for what patent, certainly all of this was built on some very basic research. Some of it coming out of the National Institutes of Health, um, some Uh of it coming out of academic institutions. And I think some of that's going to get sorted out in the courts. I mean, hopefully some of this money will go back to basic research that will prepare us for the next pandemic.
4: The next pandemic? Too soon, Brendan. Too soon.
2: There is so much more to this story, and you can read about it in the book that this episode is based on. It's called
4: The First Shots, written by Brendan Burrell, and it is a great read. If you somehow missed Planet Money Summer School and want to now bask in its golden glow, it is available in its own podcast feed. Search Planet Money Summer School and get all the episodes from seasons one and two. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at planetmoney at npr.org. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at PlanetMoney. Today's show was produced by Dave Blanchard and Corey Bridges. It was mastered by Isaac Rodriguez and edited by Jess Jang. Planet Money's supervising producer is Alex Goldmark. Louise Story and Ebony Reed are our consulting senior editors.
2: Special thanks to Gabriel Tenenbaum and the team who made Mission Possible, The Race for a Vaccine, which was produced by Pfizer, the Documentary Group, and National Geographic. I'm Amanda Ronchick. And I'm Alexi Horowitz-Gazi.
4: This is NPR. Thanks for listening.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers; They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care.
5: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel, Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.
2: What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, It Means Everything.